This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Science, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Galina Limorenko, doctoral candidate in neuroscience with a focus on biochemistry and molecular biology of neurodegenerative diseases at EPFL in Switzerland, the host of the channel. Today we'll be talking to Andrew Lee about his new book, What's the Worst That Could Happen? Existential Risk and Extreme Politics. Why catastrophic risks are more dangerous than you think and how populism makes them worse. Did you know that you're more likely to die from a catastrophe than in a car crash. Lee explains that pervasive short-term thinking leaves us unprepared for long-term risks. Lee outlines the biggest existential risks facing humanity and suggests remedies for them. Well, Andrew, welcome to the show. It's a pleasure to be with you. Thanks for having me. So as we have gone through unprecedented times of the recent global pandemic, I was wondering if you could reflect on how has it affected you and your work and maybe some main takeaways that you have gathered from the experience. Well, ironically, it took a global pandemic for me to think about the long term. It was while we were locked down in 2020 in Australia uh, that I, a book which had been percolating in my head for the previous few years finally came to fruition. And it was the notion that uh, populism, which has been on the rise across the advanced world, is causing us to think more short term and distracting the world from long term risks, some of which could spell the end of the species. Climate change, most obviously, uh, but then also things such as uh, pandemic risk, uh, uh, the uh, risk of nuclear war, and even the risk of uh, runaway artificial intelligence. Uh, all of these ris- risks require uh, global cooperation. They require long-term thinking. Uh, they require uh, the uh, the input of experts. Uh, and they're the very things that get undermined by populists. So a more populist world, I think, is a world which is... Uh, uh, more likely to end prematurely. And have, how did you have to adjust uh, to your normal life, for example, with uh, your traveling? Well, we're very fortunate. Uh, we're, my w- wife and I have a, a good setup, three patient kids and uh, uh, jobs which can be done remotely. Uh, that, of course, isn't true for a lot of the world's population. You, know, you think about the uh, security guards and cafe workers who uh, lost their jobs during the pandemic and the long-term scarring for uh, uh, careers of people uh, who haven't haven't been able to work, not to mention the direct health effects of the pandemic. Um, so, you know, it was it was inconvenient for our family, uh, but compared to, uh, to most of uh, what the world faced, we're extraordinarily lucky. So could you tell us a little bit more about yourself? So I'm a member of the Australian Parliament. Uh, I entered uh, Parliament in 2010. I represent the seat of Fenner, which is in the capital city of Canberra. Uh, And before entering politics, I worked for a while as a uh, 
uh, a lawyer, a policy advisor, and my last job before going into Parliament was uh, as a professor of economics at the Australian National University. Uh, as a professor turned politician, I try and maintain something of a bridge between uh, the world of uh, ideas and the world of power. Uh, and since going into politics, I've, uh, I've written a, a book every year or two on things such as randomised trials, social capital, uh, inequality, uh, luck in politics and uh, innovation, to name a few. And how did you find uh, this switch from economics to politics? Was it quite organic for you? What a lovely question. I think I noticed a, a few things. One is that in uh, the world of economics, uh, the what you do tends to be produced either on your own or with a couple of collaborators, whereas politics is much more of a team sport. Uh, it's a, a matter of bringing a large group of people on board with your ideas, and so it tests your power of persuasion uh, more so than does economics. And there's also less of a premium placed on uh, cute, quirky or unusual ideas than, uh, than there is in, in academia. Um, the other thing I, I noticed uh, uh, was the uh, increased emphasis on the need to uh, build those, uh, those long-term relationships. And you know, the best thing you can do for an economics colleague in a seminar is to point out the fatal flaw in their paper and tell them how to fix it. Uh, but if you stand up in a party room meeting and try that, it's, it's not always greeted with the mm -hmm. uh, same warm response. And what would you tell uh, our younger listeners and students perhaps who are considering uh, the career in politics? Oh, absolutely. Uh, it, it is uh, the most diverse and interesting job I've ever done. Uh, you know, you get to spend, I'm just thinking back over the course of this week, I've uh, had the chance to uh, discuss with uh, colleagues some policy ideas we might take to the next election in, in my areas of uh, treasury and charities. Uh, I've met with uh, local groups of uh, Hazaras from Afghanistan about what's going on there uh, with uh, Hindus from Bangladesh about some of the inter interracial violence uh, and also talking with local businesses about how they can get back on their feet. Uh, so the, the sheer diversity of conversations you get to have is, is quite remarkable. Uh, and uh, while many of my colleagues still uh, leave me in the dust in terms of their uh, ability to engage with people, I think I've uh, become more of an extrovert uh, after moving out of what is uh, ultimately a very introverted profession in uh, academia. So your latest book, What's the Worst That Could Happen? Existential Risk and Extreme Politics. I was wondering, how did you come to writing it? Uh, existential risk has uh, received short shrift in uh, politics in general. Uh, politics is often focused on the here and now, the question of uh, uh, whether we should uh, build a particular bridge or uh, increase social supports. Uh, but there's not enough focus on things which are unlikely to happen. Politics is uh, centred around the likely rather than the unlikely which means if you have something like, oh, I don't know, a uh, pandemic that, uh, that might uh, uh, sweep across the world, uh, there is little incentive to focus on pand pandemic preparedness. And so, of course, that's what we saw when COVID-19 hit, that the world wasn't sufficiently prepared for the, the worst pandemic since the Spanish flu. Uh, we hadn't put in place the systems that allowed us to uh, contain the spread of the virus, uh, the uh, development of the, of the vaccine, I think, went uh, remarkably well, all, all things considered, but the healthcare system struggled. 
Uh, we could have uh, done better and we could have saved a lot more lives uh, if we'd thought more about existential risk. Uh, but because catastrophes are unlikely, uh, the political system hadn't uh, bought enough insurance to guard against these improbable risks. Okay, so let's delve into some of the topics that you cover in your book. So firstly, why do we need to talk about the future and would it distract us from thinking about the present? You obviously uh, need to, to make trade-offs everywhere, but I think it's a trade-off that's, that's worth making, Galena. Uh, if you look at uh, the uh, amount of energy that uh, politi- politicians around the world spend on thinking about the distant future, it's, it's remarkably low. Uh, and yet if uh, the future generations could uh, look at us now, Uh, they would probably look at us in the same way as we look at a a child playing with the parking brake of a car parked on a cliff's edge. Uh, The mistakes that we make uh, in areas such as uh, nuclear nuclear war and uh, climate change could potentially shape the lives uh, of uh, hundreds, thousands, even millions of generations of humans to come. And so the uh, value of uh, of getting existential uh, risk under control uh, is massive. Uh, one estimate from Toby Ord is that the probability of a species-ending catastrophe in the next century is one in six, which means we're effectively playing Russian roulette. Uh, and uh, we need to uh, to move move quickly uh, to take that uh, that bullet out of the chamber uh, to make sure that the world endures. Uh, for the sake not only of our generation and the and and our kids and grandkids, but for those uh, many many generations we'll never get to meet. And how do we know that the risks are catastrophic? Well, assessing risk is uh, is always tricky. But uh, what I try and do in uh, um, it, it, what's the worst that could happen is to go through some of the best evidence we have over the probabilities of those risks. We have things such as supervolcanoes, which we know are. Uh, pretty awful when they uh, when they occur uh, and uh, can uh, create uh, the uh, effectively uh, a blanket uh, of uh, material around the world uh, which can, uh, can can knock out crops and and could potentially uh, cause mass famines. We know the effect of a uh, nuclear winter would be uh, horrific, not to mention the people who would die in a significant nuclear holocaust. Uh, and there is. Uh, uh, risk of climate change hitting feedback loops, which would then lead not only to a couple of degrees of warming, but uh, you know, in a, in a small probability, to warming uh, of four, five, or six degrees. Uh, at that stage, all bets are off, uh, and the impact on the planet really is catastrophic. And what's the the difference between short term and long term risks, and can one turn into another? Yeah, they certainly can. So, you know, I think that uh, the rise of populism is uh, a direct short-term danger. Uh, the uh, uh, populist politics, which pits, which posits that uh, politics is a conflict between uh, a pure ma- a mass and a vile elite, uh, is a style of politics which uh, has proven damaging to economic growth. Uh, which uh, it has, has proven damaging to social cohesion. Uh, but populism also has this long-term danger, uh, which uh, arises because populists tend to, 
distract us from uh, from what's going on in the future. Uh, if you're in a bar fight, it's very unlikely you're going to think you'd be thinking about your retirement fund. Uh, and po- and populist politics can often leave us feeling as though we're in a constant political bar fight. So what uh, would be the key issues that we have with the current systems to be able to address some of the catastrophic risks that you have uh, presented? Each of them is specific, uh, but uh, since we're in the uh, speaking around the time of the COP26 uh, climate change conference, uh, let's start with climate change. Uh, striking global agreements to reduce carbon emissions uh, is absolutely vital uh, in terms of getting the benefits that come from cheaper energy, from renewables. But one of the aspects of climate change that we don't talk about often enough is that uh, modest, even modest reductions in carbon emissions now uh, can have huge impacts in reducing the probability of a really awful outcome. Uh, you know, once we're uh, in, uh, envisaging uh, the, uh, the the sorts of changes that could be caused by some of these feedback loops, uh, you might be talking about a 75 foot increase in sea levels, uh, which is you know might sound far fetched. But they're the levels that uh, sea levels were at last time carbon concentrations were this high in the atmosphere. Um, Earth has had a handful of uh, extinction events in which uh, more than two-thirds of the species on Earth were wiped out, uh, and most of those have been related to the carbon cycle. Uh, So we need to uh, uh, reduce carbon emissions in order to take off the table uh, the slim but very real possibility of a catastrophic outcome. So staying with the uh, climate change issue uh, for a moment, I was wondering what are the different responsibilities across uh, different strata of society? So thinking about uh, um, government, uh, then uh, lower down to local level and all the way down to individual we can certainly all make choices that will ha- have an impact. So whether that's uh, uh, using a little bit le- less energy, putting solar panels on the roof, switching to an electric vehicle. Uh, but to a large extent, the uh, changes are going to need to be driven by governments. That's because the incentives in, in, in place uh, need to operate at a societal level. And you see from those countries which have managed to decarbonize most rapidly uh, in general that hasn't been because their citizens have uh, individually made particular choices uh, but because their governments collectively uh, have, uh, have have made decisions that have uh, decoupled carbon emissions uh, from economic growth and we should be optimistic about this uh, you know you look at uh, city air, air quality uh, and that went went along with economic growth up until about the middle of the 20th century. Uh, and then the two diverged and cities got richer but cleaner. Uh, so there's no reason we can't uh, decarbonise in the same way, continue to increase prosperity, uh, but in a clean way. What reasons could there be uh, for some governments to be a little bit more reluctant uh, to perhaps... Um, say that they would commit to certain amounts of decrease in the carbon emissions, even though perhaps their population really demands it? Well, in part, it can be because of uh, interest interest group politics. Uh, Straight out corporate donations, I think, explains uh, some of the intransigence, say, within the US Republican Party, which has taken 
quite a different tack on climate change than uh, their sister party, the UK Conservatives, which have been uh, much prompter to act, uh, as indeed have the uh, German Christian Democrats. Uh, but also it has proven to be an issue which can be uh, weaponized by extreme politicians. And so you see a large share of the votes in the uh, uh, European Parliament uh, against climate action being cast by populist politicians. Uh, you see the way in which uh, the issue of climate change has been weaponized by extremists uh, in Brazil uh, and in the United States. Uh, and that uh, the the uh, climate change, the way in which climate change denialism uh, rejects the views of experts, dovetails very well into the way in which populists think. Uh, populists are, are often trying to look around for elites to demonise, uh, and uh, climate scientists have uh, have often uh, been chosen as one of those elite groups that have been attacked. And then, uh, again, uh, regarding climate change, uh, which ways uh, do you see are the best to incentivize uh, governments, perhaps, or even uh, big firms to really commit, but also to act upon these commitments to reduce uh, the, global, uh, the carbon emissions? Uh, well, I think it's, it's important to, uh, to recognize uh, the benefits of acting. Uh, and the uh, the fact that there's a learning curve in solar and wind, and so uh, the more you have uptake, the more the, pr the prices tend to fall. So there's a, a, virtu a virtuous cycle there, uh, and that means that uh, greater investment in these technologies uh, can put us onto a, a positive, positive feedback loop. Uh, I think it's also worth uh, recognising that uh, phasing out the uh, the uh, dirtiest technologies um, is, uh, is is really important. So think of this as being a matter of walking down a staircase. Uh, you don't want to be jumping straight to the bottom, uh, but you do want to be very quickly looking to uh, reducing uh, brown uh, brown coal, uh, uh, the burning of brown coal, uh, and then uh, and then to, then to, then so on uh, up the uh, down the staircase until you uh, you uh, remove emissions. Uh, and working with developing countries has got to be vital. Um, China and India uh, produce a, a, a significant share of the world's carbon pollution, um, so accelerating their move uh, towards clean energy is going to be vital. Yes, these are excellent points. So looking at the bright side, are there any examples of well-addressed catastrophic risks? So uh, the, um, the the my favourite example is asteroids. Uh, there's uh, two movies that uh, that come out in 1998, um, Asteroid and Deep Impact, which talk about the danger that an asteroid might strike the Earth. That immediately uh, leads to uh, uh, inquiries in Congress, um, and a uh, an asteroid preparedness group is set up within NASA. Um, they've now managed to track. Most of the uh, the bodies which are near Earth, which might collide with us, uh, and there's indeed even uh, a pilot project going on over the next couple of years to look at how we might deflect an asteroid from Earth uh, if the uh, situation occurred. Um, so you know the uh, the the uh, catastrophic uh, factor which wiped out the dinosaurs, uh, that is a uh, an asteroid striking Mexico, uh, is uh, is now. Uh, almost unthinkable for humanity. Uh, we've managed to deal with the catastrophic risk of asteroids uh, surprisingly well.
And are there any examples of uh, failures in the recent history uh, to address any of these catastrophic risks, whether natural or man-made? Um, maybe you have a couple of those? COVID is one. Uh, another is just to look at how close the world has come to nuclear catastrophe so often. Uh, there's a moment during the 1962 Cuban Missile Crisis when a Soviet submarine dives to avoid detection. Uh, the U.S. Uh, ships nearby begin dropping depth, char- depth charges, uh, which are just practice depth charges, but the Soviet submarine commander thinks they're real depth charges and thinks that war has begun, and so orders the use of a nuclear torpedo which is almost as powerful as the one that exploded in Hiroshima. And it's just the coincidence that the fleet commander happens to be also on board that submarine uh, and uh, refuses to allow the order to go ahead, uh, which prevents a nuclear torpedo being launched in 1962. Uh, There's been other uh, close shaves to do with Russian radar uh, mistakenly uh, picking up uh, a Norwegian Uh, meteorological uh, rocket as being a missile, uh, which again could have have ended in in catastrophe. Uh, So taking missiles off hair trigger alert ought to be a very high priority, uh, as indeed should be reducing the number of of nuclear warheads uh, and not increasing the number of countries with nuclear weapons. That's incredible when you hear these stories after they happen. Terrifying, isn't it? Hmm. So I was wondering what could be done in short term to improve our approach to uh, mitigating and thinking about catastrophic risks? Well, in the short term, uh, we can quickly move to, uh, to, to reduce the risk. So uh, every single nuclear weapon is a potential point of failure. Uh, you think about uh, the the risks of attacks from terrorists, uh, the, uh, the the potential for somebody who is uh, uh, mentally disturbed and in charge of a nuclear weapon to let it off. Uh, we need to reduce the uh, the arsenal there. In terms of uh, other risks, we uh, one we haven't talked about so far is bioterrorism, uh, and there are still too many places around the world that are allowed to have access to some of the most dangerous bugs which have ever, ever, ever been invented. Uh, we need to improve the biosecurity of those uh, laboratories uh, and make it harder for terrorists to use technologies um, such as, such as uh, uh, gen- gene printing in order to create new bugs uh, which could potentially threaten humanity. Do you see the biowarfare as a really prominent catastrophic risks for the future? Yeah, I do see it as a, a significant, significant danger. You know, you think about the uh, attack uh, of uh, sarin gas by the Armshrinko uh, group in uh, in Japan, which uh, which cost a significant number of lives, uh, and they had been looking at uh, getting their hands on uh, nastier bugs. Uh, smallpox is one that you uh, you worry about a great deal, uh, and there's also been uh, what's called gain-of-function research. Uh, that's uh, attempts by scientists to make bugs worse, uh, effectively to, uh, to, to build something which has uh, the uh, infectiousness of measles uh, but the killing ability of Ebola. 
if you're able to do that, that would be a, a terrifying bug. And right now, there's not enough constraints around so-called gain-of-function research. Uh, it's too easy for scientists to decide upon themselves that they will work at trying to see how bad a bug they can make. Now, I understand the argument on this, that uh, by thinking about the worst bugs, you, you're able to potentially protect against them. Uh, but I can also see very easily how these things would slip into the wrong hands. And thinking about technological side, so do you think that AI or mass surveillance or anything that we do on our social side of uh, media, I suppose, does this uh, pose any risks? So artificial intelligence is uh, is the one which uh, I think mo causes more people to roll their eyes than anything else. Uh, perhaps that's uh, because... Uh, it's a, a staple of uh, of of, computer, of uh, uh, sort of science fiction movies um, such as uh, Terminator uh, that we think, oh well, this is uh, this is probably a, probably a bit silly. Uh, and there's a general notion that artificial intelligence uh, directed the right way will naturally make the make the world better. Uh, but there's enough serious artificial intelligence researchers around who are worried about the potential for uh, an artificial intelligence, once it exceeds human capability, to have a set of objectives which are at odds with ours. Uh, they might regard uh, humanity uh, pretty much like uh, we regard our pets. Uh, they're there for our entertainment uh, rather than us being there to give them the best possible lives. Uh, and of course, the intelligence gap between a superintelligence and humanity would quickly become much bigger than the intelligence gap between uh, our dogs and cats and ourselves. Uh, so there is an, it is important to uh, have in mind what the safety protocols would look at would look like uh, as artificial intelligence development continues. Now, I stress there's a lot of uncertainty about that. We don't know whether the point at which uh, computers exceed human ability is 20 years away, 200 years away, or 2,000 years away, but it's pretty clear we'll get there at some stage. Um, so this is actually the catastrophic risk that most people rate as being the largest, uh, the one with the largest potential to end our species. So that uh, talking about human and a machine, and when we think about technology between humans, so when it comes to privacy and data protection, do you think there's risk? That's more in the uh, the realm of uh, non-catastrophic problems. Uh, I mean, I certainly worry an awful lot about uh, uh, the way in which the tech giants have been behaving. Uh, we've just had the uh, Facebook files le leaked and uh, Francis Haugen, the whistleblower there, came and spoke to a group of uh, Australian parliamentarians about uh, what was in those fi those files, and it's pretty disturbing. I think uh, the uh, tech giants could do a lot better in terms of maintaining data privacy, uh, and uh, and also on uh, issues around how their platforms can be used to spread hate speech. Uh, indeed, when I mentioned before having. Uh, uh, met with uh, with a gr group of constituents uh, of uh, Hindu Bangla Bangladeshis uh, that prompted me to write to Mark Zuckerberg asking him what he is doing in order to ensure that there are enough Bengali language moderators in Facebook 
uh, to control the potential for the platform to be used for hate speech. So I worry about that a lot, but Galena, I put that in a different basket from the catastrophic risks. Uh, I think that the the artificial intelligence uh, uh, that Facebook is using is problematic for society, but I think super intelligence is is potentially catastrophic. Yes, that's a really useful distinction. So now thinking about the bigger picture and reflecting on society a little bit. So in what way the perception of the existential risks is being shaped by our political and economic forces of the day? So do we have any risks that are in vogue at any given time? Right now, of course, pandemic preparedness is uh, is in vogue and we're probably uh, doing much better in terms of being ready for the next bug now than we would have uh, than we were in uh, 2019. Uh, but there's still the uh, uh, the rise of uh, of populism, and for every moment where someone says, "Oh, we've uh, we've beaten back the uh, the, the populists," uh, the uh, the uh, results from the German election, for for example, uh, seem to uh, to to indicate that uh, the uh, alternative for Deutschland uh, had uh, had slipped backwards. Uh, then you've seen the uh, midterm, U.S. midterm elections uh, in 2021, uh, which is sorry, not midterms, but the November 2021 elections, uh, which appear to have uh, reported uh, an upsurge in the number of uh, populist candidates there, uh, and that indicates that uh, populism is uh, it continues to be attractive, particularly at a time in which uh, many people feel as though the economy isn't delivering for them. Uh, I talk about the, the causes of the rise of populism as jobs, snobs, race, pace and luck, uh, meaning that uh, uh, the employ- employment when your employment prospects are bad, when you feel people are looking down on you, uh, when you uh, feel as though minorities are getting more than their fair share, uh, when you feel the world is moving too fast, uh, and when the uh, leader happens to be especially charismatic, uh, then the lure of populism becomes larger. And do we need to stare risk right in the face in order to do something about it? I, I think it's useful to do so. Uh, we do that all the time, of course, with uh, home insurance. Uh, so most of us have insurance on our homes. Uh, and we do that because we're staring right in the face the prospect that our home might burn down. Uh, now, that prospect uh, causes me to go out and buy insurance, but it doesn't prevent me from going to sleep at night. I know it's a very small problem, but I also know that if it happened, it would be catastrophic, which is why I've got a home insurance policy. Uh, And it's also why I don't have an insurance policy uh, on my mobile phone. Uh, Losing my mobile phone would be annoying, but not catastrophic. Uh, And yet much of what we're doing in politics seems to be focused on problems of the level of uh, will my mobile phone get lost compared to will my house get burned burned down? Uh, and recognising the importance of investing a little bit more in averting catastrophe. Now, in economic terms, uh, the uh, the expected value of, uh, of doing that uh, can be extre- extremely large. So what, what discoveries along, uh, along your journey to writing your book, what's the worst that could happen surprised you the most? I was surprised by the degree of consensus in the artificial intelligence community about uh, uh, artificial intelligence risk. 
Uh, so I, I'd gone into it in imagining that there would be uh, a strong divide between philosophers who thought that this was something to worry about and artificial intelligence researchers who told everyone to go away. Uh, and, you know, there's a bit of that. There's a famous line by uh, uh, the researcher Andrew Ng who says it's like worrying about overpopulation on Mars. But by and large, there is uh, acceptance within the artificial intelligence community that this is a problem worth thinking about. Uh, it's not a problem that should be used to impede development, uh, but getting the ethical standards right uh, is important uh, and building into the systems uh, some, some, some ability to think ethically and to have those ethical values updated. Uh, because what you probably don't want to do is to encode just the ethical values of today uh, into, into machines for all time. Uh, imagine if we'd done this uh, 100 years ago, we would have locked in a set of ethical values that were more racist, sexist and homophobic than those that we uh, appreciate today. So it's easy to imagine that society's ethical values will, will shift over time and having uh, a super intelligence able to learn about our ethical values uh, will be important. Is there anything else that you would like our listeners to hear, something that we haven't uh, discussed today? I think the ability of all of us to have a conversation about the long term and the notion that while this might sound catastrophic, and then it is, you know, there's plenty of movies about catastrophe, it is also a fundamentally optimistic picture. I love the notion that uh, there are ancestors of mine who will, will live lives of unimaginable beauty and pleasure. Uh, where they'll get to enjoy uh, a a food of a greater quality than I've ever tasted, uh, a world of greater aesthetic pleasure than I've ever known, uh, hopefully to live for much longer than, than, I, than I will, uh, and to do so uh, in uh, collaboration with others, which provides a real sense of meaning and purpose. And it's those almost infinite numbers of lives uh, that I want to uh, uh, to, to, to preserve uh, and to foster through writing this book. Uh, the story of humanity is fundamentally a really optimistic one. Uh, and uh, what we have to do is to take that one in six chance of catastrophe, dial it down to zero, uh, and therefore ensure that our, our ancestors, many, many, many generations of ancestors can live phenomenal lives. Oh, that's a beautiful message. And then which movie is your favorite from the catastrophic movies? Oh, look, I, I think it's, uh, it's pretty hard to go by uh, past uh, Bruce Willis's Armageddon. Uh, I think I thought that was, uh, was, it was good, good fun. But, uh, you know, there's a, there's a lot of good pandemic movies out, movies out there and disaster, disaster flicks. So uh, if you want to do your research by uh, sitting in, fr in front of the screen, I think that's a great way to learn about catastrophes. <laughs> Well, we've taken up a lot of your time. Can you tell us what are you currently working on and what will be your next project? Well, we've an election coming up uh, any time. Uh, Australia has uh, uh, terms, the, the election term is, uh, is set by the Prime Minister and so the Prime Minister can call an election at any point. Um, so I'm, I'm really focused on uh, helping my Labour colleagues put together policies for that election uh, and campaigning in my uh, local electorate. Um, I've 
always felt that being a member of parliament is uh, a privilege and never a right. And it's important to be there for people, to engage with the local community, to be as accessible as possible. Um, The best sort of campaigning is where you're out in the electorate solving local problems. Um, So I like to think that I'm not just out there shilling for votes, but actually trying to make a positive difference in my local community. Uh, And my community is pretty extraordinary. Uh, The city of Canberra is uh, now... Uh, now has 94% of the over 12 population vaccinated uh, and is fast on track to becoming the most vaccinated city in the world. Uh, so I'm pretty proud of that and uh, pretty uh, proud to uh, to represent them in the uh, in the federal parliament and hoping to do so again after the next election. And where can our listeners find more information about your work and also your book? So my uh, website is the modestly named andrewlee.com. I'm on Twitter, uh, as uh, easy, easy to find there, uh, and the book is uh, available uh, in uh, ebook and hard hardcover form uh, wherever good books are sold. Uh, look forward to uh, to hearing your views on it. If uh, people have read it and uh, want to continue the conversation, uh, please do get in touch. Well, Andrew, thank you so much for joining me today and for this thought-provoking discussion. Thanks, Glenna. It's been a pleasure.